Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Mick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. As usual, I have Jake joining me for this episode, as well as everyone's favorite Canadian and video tutorial supremo, Greg Hyo. Welcome back, Greg. Hey, Mick and Jake, thanks for having me back. Now, just like in your previous appearance, Greg, the next 20 minutes are all yours. Over to you. Thanks, Mick. What I want to talk about this week is open source Swift, particularly Swift Evolution and where the language and the standard library and the foundation framework and all that good stuff, where are they going in the future? I know you guys covered open source Swift already back in episode four of this season when the announcement came out, but I think this is a good time to revisit the topic, see where things have gone so far in the last couple of months, and uh, what kind of things we can look forward to in the future. So I'm going to try to keep things a little bit practical, and for those of us who aren't uh, really smart compiler engineers, but we're just regular iOS or Mac or TV or watch developers, or maybe even potentially back-end web people who are writing in Swift or who want to write in Swift, and I just want to think about what can we do to contribute to Swift, to the language, and also why should we what's in it for us to get involved, and those kind of things. Let's start with an overview just of the high-level process, so to speak, of how to get a feature or change into Swift, what's going on with the mailing list, and then we can talk about some more specifics, maybe get into some changes that have been going on, and some things that you guys have done uh, as you look into the language and the, uh, the mailing list and things like that. So I want to start with the mailing list, because that's really the core of it, where all the exciting and the not-so-exciting discussions happen. And the Swift Evolution mailing list is a relatively high volume list, so I think it really embodies the excitement that you can see behind the language. And it's part of what I like best about open source Swift, is that, that sort of chaos that surrounds all of these early proposals and suggestions. So on the mailing list, people throw out all kinds of things, like new operators, making self-required, and there's tons of discussion and argument around it, and that's the kind of thing that I really enjoy. And then eventually things coalesce and they settle down a bit. Somebody will write up a proposal for the change. And there's already been a lot of discussion around this stuff. So my favorite part of these proposals when they get written up is usually the section that lists the pros and cons because it summarizes the strongest arguments against the proposal. And I think that's a great thing to do so to sort of deal with those potential issues head on. And then there's a bit of a voting and a comment period. But of course, it's not a democracy. So the group of benevolent dictators on the Swift team at Apple will discuss and make the final decision, and then that'll be a proposal all the way through the process. So I have a few statistics that I've gleaned from the numbers to share. Great. Just before you move on, yeah. who puts the arguments against it together? Is that the Swift team, or does the author of the proposal have to give a balanced opinion? Or Yeah, it's actually the author of the proposal who, who writes it. And I've seen several styles, but sometimes they, they usually quote the emails directly. So it'll say like pros, and it'll be in quotes, the quote, and then sort of an attribution, and then the cons, and they do the same thing. So it really is the person who's uh, making the proposal. It kind of, you know, it looks like they're really considering both sides of it and offering both up in an almost neutral way, even though they're the ones obviously making the proposal and they're for it. But I, I like the idea that, you know, you have to also make sure you've taken into account the, hopefully the strongest arguments against your proposal as well as part of it. Oh, okay, so so once this is start or this idea starts to be discussed on the mailing list and, you know, the in inevitable resistance comes in, then you actually use that to almost strengthen your case. You're using it as, as part of your argument because you can 
put put your view across in response to that argument, but then you provide the balance by including that as well. Exactly. I think that's a good technique to do just in, in life in general. Right? There's a life hack in general is you always want to anticipate what are the counter arguments. And so what I like about the especially well-written proposals is that they acknowledge them and they say, well, that could be a problem, but here's what I think of why it's not a problem or here's the solution to it, which I've put in my proposal or whatever. So anyway, I think that's what makes these really good reading and you know, makes the proposals much stronger in the end. I have a, a quick question about that. Are the proposals just coming from people external to the team and they're they're being kind of pushed towards the team or is the team also having the same kind of proposal dialogue between each other for... Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I've seen both. There have been some community-led proposals and also obviously the Swift team amongst themselves are, I'm sure they're talking like not on the mailing list, offline amongst themselves. Right. Then in the end, they always bring the proposal up on the mailing list and on the website for everyone else to kind of comment and, and chime in as well. So it comes from both uh, from both sides. I've just got one 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 question, another one more question about the mailing list. I was briefly a a member of the Swift Evolution mailing list, but the volume was like it was just overwhelming to to even be able yeah. to comprehend what was going on. And just following a single like a single chain of emails um, became almost impossible. And then. I know, obviously, you've been following this. I'm just wondering, like, how how you're able to keep on top of it. What techniques are you using that the rest of us struggled with? That's a great question. I had some notes on that later on. Um, a couple of them are, some people say, just subscribe to the mailing list on, like, some other account and just look in on it every once in a while. You can also subscribe to the Digest, but that puts many emails together in one email, which isn't great. The website to browse the mailing list isn't, doesn't have the best interface, so that's why some people say just subscribe, then you can use your favorite mail app, and it'll do all the threading and stuff for you. There's also an app that I found called uh, Hirundo, which is apparently Latin for the genus of bird that is swift. It includes the sparrows or something like that. And it's like a browser for the mailing list. So it's like a mail client, but it only looks at the Swift, uh, the Swift mailing list. So you can use that as sort of a reader, almost like a news reader. If anyone remember the, remembers those from the old Usenet days. The other alternative is to subscribe to, there's a, another weekly mailing list called Swift Weekly Brief, which is not produced by Apple. It's produced by a gentleman named Jesse Squires, and he kind of collects the most important and interesting things and produces the summary every Thursday. So you can just subscribe to that as an alternative. I was going to ask, is anyone kind of curating this and creating kind of like a, you know, like a, a version that, is doesn't require yeah. so much investment and and the yes. answer is at least this one guy is if you read it do you agree with his because that's the key to curation right is that that if you were there yourself you'd get a pretty similar interpretation of what's going on have you what's your opinion yeah he does a he does a great job with it it's also okay. kind of community awesome. driven he did the first few issues himself but now i think it's an open github repository so if there's something of interest that you think should be in there you can just do a pull request and he'll publish it on the thursday oh that's awesome uh, but yeah he okay. does a good job with it yeah okay yeah that that's for me. I'm not interested in trying to follow the minutia, but, <laughs> but that that's what I would hope for something like that. So I'm going to subscribe to that. I think yeah, Eric, that's a good way to get a nice quick summary of the uh, of the highlights. I yeah. think Erica Sedun does often mention things on her website around the stuff that's been announced on the Swift Evolution mailing list, which sometimes offers a different opinion to Jesse's because I've I read quite both those things. 
Yeah, there's also Swift Sandbox. I think they may have renamed themselves, but that's another one of those uh, weekly mailing lists. And they have a section about sort of what's new and what's cool on the Swift Evolution mailing list. That's another way to keep track. And I was going to say the final thing is there's the Swift Evolution Announce mailing list, <laughs> which is lower volume and only will email when there's like a proposal to look at or something has been accepted or something has been rejected. So if you're like, I don't care as much about the minutiae, you know, the actual discussion, I just want to know, hey, there's a new proposal, then this is um, an official Apple Swift mailing list that, and it's just an announced list. So it's much uh, lower volume if that's what you're looking for. So do you, think that, do you think that Apple chose the right medium based on the fact that, that there's a mailing list that actually just creates a mailing list and there's a dedicated app for reading a mailing list all within weeks of that mailing list being opened up. It's like this seems like a problem that shouldn't need solving, uh, especially if you're wanting sort of such huge community participation that maybe email isn't the best medium for that. Yeah, this is the classic way to do it. You know, everybody knows email, everybody has email. So a mailing list is the traditional way to do things in open source. I don't know if a for web forum would be better and we'd all have to sign up for that, kind of like the Apple developer forums. I don't know if that would be better. That would certainly be a nicer interface. I actually just heard about a, someone made an iOS app to also browse the forums. I haven't looked at it yet, but uh, maybe I'll try to find a link to that. But I don't know, it's a low tech solution, but I guess the benefit of, you know, like people say, everything should be plain text. Because if it's plain text, you can use any editor, any whatever that you want to deal with it. So it's nice that a mailing list is kind of like that, low tech, but that means that you could have a website for it, you can have an app for it, and you can write filters for it and so on. So um, I don't know, that's kind of where we are at the state of the technology for large discussions, unfortunately, I think. Let me talk about these, just uh, some quick stats on some of the proposals that have come in. So there are 39 proposals right now, or total proposals have come through so far. So only in, what, December, January, we're mid-February, so that's only within 10 weeks or so. It's pretty good. 39 proposals. Nine of them have been accepted for Swift 3. Eight of them accepted for Swift 2.2. Two rejected, and then 20 of them are still sort of pending. They're either being revised or they're being voted on or for, for comments. So there's definitely been a, a large number of these that have already gone through the full process and that have made it into the language already. Can you give us some examples of both what's going into 2.2 and what's going into 3? Yeah, the 2.2 ones have been, I think, relatively minor things. There's some cool stuff in there. One would be uh, tuple comparisons, for example. If you have a simple tuple, like two strings or a string and an int or something like that, and you want to compare them, then right now you cannot do that because it's like, a, you know, it doesn't conform to equatable, it doesn't know how to do it, but they've added this feature where uh, tuples up to an area of six. So if you have a tuple of six or fewer things inside there, and the types match, so if you have a tuple of two strings, you can just do equals equals another tuple of two strings, and it'll do the comparison. So it kind of writes it for you, which is kind of nice because probably people won't have tuples of like, you know, 50 items. So there's um, built-in comparison for that. Another thing is uh, safer use of selectors. So in Objective-C, we had to do sort of at selector, and you would give the name of the method that you wanted to refer to. and Eventually, I think we got some type checking, right? If you had a selector and you just made up some name, I think it would give you a compiler warning saying, I don't think there's such a selector, so you better be careful. Is that, is that right? Is my memory serving me right there? I think as long, as you, I think as long as you specified a, you know, a, a container to look within, because obviously you can specify a selector without, say, 
passing self and then it would just work its way up the responder chain. But I think right. if you pass self and then there wasn't a selector with that name, you'll get some type checking, if I remember correctly. Okay. It's been a okay. long time since I've done any Objective-C. I know, any Objective-C. I know, me too. <laughs> uh, so that's one of the things in Swift 2, too, is selectors are string literal convertibles. So if you have a selector in Swift, you can just do open quotes and just say the name of it, and that's it. So there's absolutely no checking because it's just a string. And so they've added this new hash selector to the language, and that will let you um, name a selector properly with the object and the method, and it will do. It will be able to do checking for you later on. So that's a um, example of a nice little safety feature that's coming in Swift two two. Swift three is a little bit uh, larger changes, maybe to the language. I think the most discussed ones were things that they're removing. Things like uh, you can't have var in your function parameters anymore. Function parameters are usually constant. They're like let by default but you could put var in front and then you could mutate them later on. But that was a little confusing because people thought they were like in-out parameters. Are they references? So that's out. The plus plus and minus minus increment and decrement operators are out. C style for loops are out. So there are much bigger changes coming in Swift 3 in terms of uh, sort of the fundamentals of the language. Um, so again, if you look at the uh, Swift Evolution website on GitHub, there's this list. It's almost like a nice little roadmap saying, here's what's coming in Swift 2.2. Here's what's coming in Swift 3. But it looks like it's the usual things. They want to remove things, make the language cleaner, and make the language safer, as is always, um, I think, what the Swift team wants. Are, are there, is there any of those that were particularly controversial? or? Yeah, with the plus plus and the C style for loops, I think it was a lot of like, okay. is it, why is this such a concern? Like, why can't we just leave it? What's the big deal? Is it really important enough to remove? And there was a, almost a philosophical debate about, you know, yes, we want to keep the language clean. This is leftover cruft from C that we just assumed. Of course you have to have a C, right? Every C-based language or C-style language like JavaScript or whatever has that kind of for loop. It's just almost a given. Nobody thinks about it. So that's kind of why they did it. And so there was that kind of argument. Like everybody else has it. Why should we not have it? Why are we removing it now? So I, it's very much Apple style, isn't it? Like moving ahead, saying we're not going to look back. We don't want to support these features just for legacy reasons. We want the language to be a good language on its own and not have too much legacy stuff in there. But is this partly to do with like with it being such a safe language as well? Is that the more ways you give somebody to do this to complete the same task the more ways there are to introduce bugs and therefore if you give somebody if you if you reduce all that cruft and you just give a single single um, solution to to that one specific problem then you're less likely to go wrong with it yeah i think so because i mean c style for loops were always back in the day for like you know i'm going to increment a pointer or something like that which you don't need to do in swift as much right and the plus, plus, and minus, minus, they have some other nuances because they return the value, you know, post-increment versus pre-increment, which is always difficult to explain to new developers, like, what the difference is. And so just removing that altogether is like, you know what, just increment it on your own with a plus equals or something like that, and we don't have to worry about return values and whether it happened before or after and order of operations and whatnot. So I think it really does, like you said, Mick, kind of simplify it and say, here's the way to do it, eliminating side effects and older styles of code with, say, C-style for loops and saying, no, let's use ranges and, and things like that. So yeah, I think that's the general direction of things. So those are some of the changes that, that are coming up that I think we should look at. I also wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of things. One was also, if you're just a regular iOS developer or something like that, and you're like, okay, the language is going to change that's kind of beyond, you know, beyond my understanding or something like that. But I think another thing I really like about open source Swift that I found is just looking at the source code, right? If you're curious on how things work, 
You can, of course, look into all the C++ code that does parsing and code generation and all that fun stuff. But personally, my favorite place to look is in the standard library, because the Swift standard library is itself written in Swift. So it's a great opportunity to learn about some relatively close to the surface internals, not like deep internals like SIL and LLVM IR and that stuff, but just like how do arrays work? How are optionals implemented? How does the print function print? And how does sorting work and things like that? So if you just browse through the standard library source, I've just found lots of little enlightening bits in there about how the everyday things that we use work. And that's just been really enlightening to me and a, kind of a surprise. I didn't think I would be browsing that stuff, but I just found it really interesting. Have you applied that to, to your own code going forward? And have you spotted any design patterns or you know that kind of thing that you think, actually, that makes sense. And then you've applied that to your own code going forward? Little style things I've noticed, like just like, oh, they used a for loop with ranges here where I wouldn't have thought that, or the, the I wouldn't call it a trick, but like the four underscore, you know, one to 10, using the underscore when you don't care about the variable, which um, Xcode warns you about all the time these days, <laughs> but that kind of thing. I'm like, oh, I don't usually do that, but I should do that more. And sorting algorithms was the big one. I was talking to somebody about, you know, what a good sorting algorithm is, and I was like, maybe I'll see how Swift does it. And that led to a whole rabbit hole about, you know, comparing sorting algorithms. I read an academic paper on how it works and everything. So that was definitely, I wouldn't say something that I would apply in my own life because, you know, we don't write very many sorting algorithms. But just as a general understanding thing, it's just really neat to be able to see that kind of thing live in the code. Uh, we are almost out of time, Greg. Did you have anything else you wanted to tell us about Swift Evolution before we wrap up? I did. I just wanted to give a sort of what's in it for me and say that there are changes going on in the language that are going to affect us directly as developers running Swift. So I'd say at the very least, you should subscribe to the Swift Evolution announce list. You'll get, you can look at the roadmap of changes. And there was a really good blog post by uh, Kurt Clifton. And I just want to quote the end of his post. He says, we need to step up and be part of the community. Otherwise, we, might, we may find that we're developing with a language that doesn't work for our needs. So we have a really good opportunity to be involved with this language that we're using day-to-day -day in our jobs. And I think it's important to be as involved as you think you can stand, at least keeping track of the changes and at most you know, submitting proposals and voting on things uh, if that's what you're interested in. Uh, thanks a lot, Greg. I appreciate all that. That was that was some really good stuff for me. I'm definitely going to uh, subscribe. I think I already am subscribed to one of those digests, but I'm going to pay closer attention to what's in it. Um, before we move on to Mick, uh, we're going to take a quick break and hear about our sponsor for this episode. Hired is the platform for the best iOS developer jobs. Candidates registered with Hired receive an average of five offers on the platform, all from a single application. Companies looking to hire include Facebook, Uber, and Stripe. With Hired, you get job offers and salary and or equity before you interview, so you don't have to waste your time interviewing for jobs you might not end up wanting. And of course, it's totally free to use. Plus for you, our listeners, you will receive a $2,000 bonus from Hired if you find a job through their platform. Just for signing up using the show's exclusive link, hired.com forward slash Ray. Thanks again to Hired for sponsoring this episode of the RayWendlet.com podcast. All right, Mick, the floor is yours. This episode, I wanted to talk about something that I've been following closely, probably as closely as Greg's been following the Swift Evolution mailing list. Something that kicked off uh, a little over a year ago by a chap named Felix Krauss. I hope that's, I'm pronouncing that correctly. And that's Fastlane. We were due to talk about this on the previous episode, but then obviously we had the big pass announcement and we felt that you know um, we needed to, to discuss that first. Now... For anybody that doesn't know what Fastlane is, 
Imagine that I said to you, I can give you a tool that could, when you are ready, bump your build version, commit any changes that are waiting to be committed, run your tests, and if they complete, build and sign an IPA, generate a change log from your commit messages, create and upload a GitHub release, upload to Hockey, and then ping you on Slack to tell you that's all been done. And this is all from a single command that you're running terminal. That's exactly what Fastlane is, but it's not just confined to those few um, examples that I gave you there. There is a wealth of um, tools that come with Fastlane, because Fastlane is kind of an umbrella term over this series of tools that you can pull together uh, using Fastlane to automate basically anything beyond the point when you finish coding in your project. So you can, it will manage all your certificates, all your provisioning profiles for you, takes the hassle out of that. They even provide you with a plugin that you can um, install into Xcode, which disables the fix it button that Xcode gives you. So you're not even tempted to let Xcode do anything uh, because this does it all for you and does it in a proper way. Uh, it can automate taking screenshots. It will even, if you localize your app, it will even change the simulator language to each language that you've localized for and retake all your screenshots for you. It can frame those screenshots, those little screenshots that you get on the app store. It's kind of like you see the, the outer skin of the iPhone and it's got some text at the top. It will produce all those for you. It will then post all that up to iTunes Connect. It will tell you when the status changes on iTunes Tunes Connect, it'll tell you when it goes into review, all that kind of stuff. Um, they give you tools to uh, onboard beta testers. They'll, they even give you a Rails app that you can throw up on Heroku that'll manage signing up your beta testers and then pushing those changes up to iTunes Connect, redoing the provisioning profiles, pushing them down every time you build. It's basically a huge suite of tools that up until recently, this one chap Felix uh, was building it was recently. It's a little bit. I'm a little bit unsure as to whether it was acquired or whether Felix just joined um, Twitter slash Crashlytics because they were going to allow him to continue working on this in a full time uh, capacity. But now there are more people contributing to Fastlane than there were. But I mean, that's that's basically an overview. I mean, have you guys heard of Fastlane? I know we've had a tutorial on the site about it. I've heard of it. I haven't had a chance to use it. The um, screenshot tool sounds like it would come in handy. I've got an app that's localized into six uh, additional languages, so seven, including English, and it took forever to... In fact, I have I have left some of my screenshots old because the changes are so minor that it's not worth going <laughs> through the process of retaking the screenshots. So that, in particular, looks really tempting to me. Well, I mean, each of these tools you can install and use individually. There's like 11 tools currently that make up the Fastlane suite of tools, but each one can be installed individually if you just want to make use of that that one tool. The one that we're referring to there is called Snapshot. Um, and not only will it do the changing of the localization, but it will also run the test on each required device as well. So, you know, if you have a universal device, you have to upload a iPhone six screenshot an iphone six plus screenshot and an ipad screenshot um it will change the device for each localization as well as the language so you know if you've got what do you say you had seven languages and is the three maybe four like required devices 
you know, that's 28 sets of screenshots you've got to do. And it's now, Mick, is this all sort of on the command line suite of tools or is there some Xcode integration in there as well for you? No, this is all running on the, on the command line. So it's written in Ruby. You install it with Gem, which is Ruby's uh, package manager. You know, it gives you um, a, a, the single umbrella command, which is Fastlane. And then it gives you, like I say, because you can install these individually, you, each of those has its own command on the terminal as well. Now, obviously, you can do uh, some partial integration with Xcode because Xcode allows you to add build scripts. So you could write a, a script which would call out to Fastlane, you know, on every build or, or whatever. But it's kind of, I've always used it, always seen it as a tool that you would use once you'd finished coding. So... For instance, if you, like like with that example that I gave you there, if you wanted to push a, a build out to your beta testers, you know that is the point where you would just you know open your terminal, type in the single command, and it takes care of everything else for you, rather than you having to do each of those steps manually. And it seems like each one of these tools solves a problem that shouldn't exist in the first place. <laughs> I, th- I think that's why there's been such uh, such an attraction to it, and it's gained so much traction. Um, because this thing, I just want to give you a quick insight as to uh, how much of a moving target it is. If we look on, uh, if you look on GitHub, since it started, there's been 138 releases. It's like if you look through the releases, there is an it's an average of like every three to four days they release a new version. And we actually put together a tutorial on the site. Um, we started writing it in November last year, and it came out in December, I think. And just in that space of, oh no, it came out at the end of November. Just in that space of the sort of six to eight weeks it takes to put a tutorial together, half of the tutorial had broken and no longer worked by the time it got into the editing phase because it's such a fast-moving target. Like, I've even, on my notes that I've compiled for this episode, I've put in big letters, even worse than Swift, because, you know, as you guys are book authors or, you know, Greg, you make videos, you know how hard it's been to keep all the video content or the written content on the site up to date just with the changes in the Swift releases. But this, you know, this is crazy fast. It doesn't really affect too much if you're just kind of using it on a on a day-to-day basis. But when you're writing like 4,000 words and you're advising um, people how to use this, then it, it kind of did become a big issue. But it, it obviously shows the passion uh, that the guys behind it have and also the demand for it. Because if there wasn't such a demand for it, I doubt they would be putting in, you know, this much effort. And then, like I said, they, they were acquired by... Well, essentially Twitter. It was via Crashlytics, but obviously Crashlytics is owned by by Twitter. Um, so obviously they saw a big, uh, you know, they saw the potential in it. I'm surprised, to be honest, that it's it's not been, you know, Apple weren't sniffing around. Maybe they were, obviously, I'm not privy to those conversations that took place. But, you know, it actually works by Felix, the chap that put it together, has reverse engineered the APIs that like Xcode uses to communicate with iTunes Connect and the developer portal. And also, is it uh, ITMS Transporter, that little tool that you use to to send your, you know, your your builds up to uh, iTunes Connect to, to submit them for review? Like all those, obviously, have APIs behind them to communicate with the Apple servers. And he's he's basically spent hours reverse engineering those APIs and then building these really nice, uh, you know, right Ruby tools around them to provide a much richer experience. 
That's what I was going to ask. So if I looked into the source code of Fastlane, is it just a bunch of Ruby scripts making HTTPS requests, sending files back and forth, and looking at the replies? Is that all it is? Pretty much, not yeah. All it, not, I don't want to like say, oh, that's all it is. I don't mean it like that. But is that what, what he's done here with the Ruby scripts? Yeah, so basically, it all, like there's one main base, which is called Spaceship, and that's the um, that's kind of the what wraps the HTTP client between the Dev Center and iTunes Connect. And then... All these extra tools are built on top of Spaceship that, and they just p perform one single task. My favorite tool at the minute is, and I just, just, I mean, I don't even really use it so much at the minute because um, I've not been able to implement it at Raiseware. I, I would like to at some point in the future, but we're just crazy busy at the minute, and, and it signifies quite a big change to the way we work. Um, and being a single developer and one that's that busy that I don't have any of my own personal projects on, on the go at the minute. But it's a new tool that they've released called Match. And this basically takes over the whole um, control over code signing, managing your certificates. They even released a new version. I think it was actually released on the 14th of Feb when the Apple's WWDR certificate expired. Um, so they're actually released a new release, which checks to see if that certificate is valid before continuing uh, and will prompt you to go and download the new one if it's expired. More to explain than I'm going to be able to get in these 20 minutes. So what I'll do is I'll put in the show notes specifically the link to codesigning.guide, which is like the introduction to Match. And like the high just to give you a high-level overview, it basically creates your certificates and your provisioning profiles for you. And then it puts them in a private Git repository and then whenever you move to a new computer or if you're on a team and you share these between a team, all you need to do is open, like you're starting on that project, you've got nothing on that computer, you open terminal, you type in match and you know within a few seconds, you've got all the correct profiles, all the correct certificates set up and you're able to build that project just as if you, know, you were on your other computer or with any other project on that team. And it's all shared amongst that team and it just seems a really good and well thought out way to manage that aspect of building apps, which is often one of the most frustrating aspects of building apps, especially you know for, for iOS or Mac. I know there are some security concerns around storing things like certificates and provisioning profiles in a Git repo, but they actually go into the security in some depth on coinciding.guide uh, to sort of allay some of those fears. So it's definitely worth checking out that. But that's definitely my favorite part of uh, fast tools at the minute. How does it interact with the built-in code siding that's in that, like the provisioning that Xcode manages automatically? Does it just sidestep that and create like a parallel chain and, and just use that instead? Or does it try and interact with that? No, well, it, it, it doesn't use anything. So it's using underneath Xcode, obviously Xcode is using the same API, same HTTP requests as Match is using, but they actually sort of um, tell you not to use anything within Xcode. Okay. Uh, and like I said sense. earlier, they actually provide a plugin which disables that. You know, like sometimes it'll go, there's no provisioning profile found, and then there's that little fix it button, and then you would click it, and then it would normally, it would go off to ITC or the dev portal and generate the necessary stuff. It actually disables that, so you can't click it. Uh, again, I'll put some links in the show notes, but if you go up to their GitHub repository, they have uh, an examples. So Fastlane is its own, uh, it's not a company, you know, like you have on GitHub where 
you can have many organizations. Pro- organization. Um, and under there, they've got a, an examples repo, and they show you how certain companies are using Fastlane. And these are, you know, well-known companies like Wikipedia, Artsy, Mozilla, and they even have all the files that they've set up on there. So you can actually go in and see how these different um, teams are using Fastlane. So that's one really good way to learn. But if you did want to understand more about things like um, co-signing and provisioning, Ruby is a really easy language to pick up, especially like if you're coming from a Swift background. So you could dig into the code and, and have a good look around. But one of the things that Match does is the first first thing that there's a a command that you can pass Match called Nuke, and that will basically go into your keychain and go into iTunes Connect and the dev portal and just clear everything out so you have got nothing in any of those places. And then you, because like I say, can go in and, and init a new GitHub repo to store for that specific app, and it does it on the bundle identifier. And then it will manage it from there on. And anytime you uh, it sort of initialize it, it will update the provisioning profile. So, for instance, if you use one of the other tools to um, onboard a new beta tester, then obviously their device needs to be in that provisioning profile. You know, it takes care of all that for you. You're not having to worry about doing anything like that. And it even um, shows you how to set up the specific build settings in Xcode to be able to use this. So everything is on there. It's all on the README. It's all on codesigning.guide. It's a really, really good part of Fastlane. I mean, I don't want to make Fastlane, the other tools in Fastlane sound less important than Match, but when they announced Match, and let's say it's a recent addition to the suite of tools, it just like really struck a chord with me because of pains with um, provisioning and signing. And I think, you know, things like the certificate expiring, and you know the push notification thing that happened a while ago. It's just, you know, it exemplifies, um, you know, all the issues that developers face on a day-to-day basis with this stuff. And any tool that we can get our hands on that makes that that a little bit easier to swallow, you know, can only be a good thing. Yeah, I want to ask quickly, Mick. I know a lot of people out there are like, oh, I don't like having third-party libraries in my code, and I don't like relying on third-party stuff, which. I don't know, it was maybe a little misguided, but how do people, are people nervous about relying on things like provisioning and submitting apps and things like that and submitting screenshots? Are you worried about relying on the third-party tool for that? Or what's the general, or because as far as I can see, everyone who uses Fastlane really loves it, but is that a concern if like Apple changes something in iTunes Connect or something like that? There's a couple of things that you kind of need to consider. Is one is if Fastlane went away tomorrow, you're not actually losing anything in the same way that, say, you add some third-party code, uh, you know, like if you had a CocoaPod in your app and the author of that CocoaPod went away, well, part of your actual app is dependent on that code being there. But, you know, all this is is it's it's a tool that abstracts away some of the pain of a process that already existed. And if that tool went away, you would just have to go back to the more painful process of doing all this kind of stuff manually. Um, but you wouldn't; it wouldn't stop you from doing it by that tool being taken away. It would just increase the frustration. Now, obviously, there isn't uh, an issue with if Apple change, changes any of the APIs. But as far as I see it, they can only do that on a major Xcode update, and they would still some, they would still need to run 
all previous versions of the API concurrently until they were sure that everyone that uses Xcode is using the latest version, by which point I would have expected that at the pace these guys move in maintaining and updating Fastlane to have already reverse engineered the you know the changes that Apple that Apple make because what you got to remember is this is built on the same stuff that Xcode is using to communicate with iTunes Connect and and the developer portal so they can't just change it on a whim because it would just break everybody's Xcode installation the um, iFreaks podcast that I listened to from time to time had Felix on, and they, they talked to him about how amazed they were because one of the hosts on that, Andrew Manson, he committed um, a patch or something to, to one of the Fastlane tools, and he said like it was like a day or two in, in between when he submitted it and when he got a response from Felix. So he was impressed by how quickly... Uh, and obviously his life could change. I mean, this is you know it, it depends on whoever's maintaining the project. That could change, but apparently right now he... He moves amazingly fast, so... He moved amazingly fast when it was his part-time project. And now he works somewhere that he's employing him to work on this full-time, so you can just imagine. I mean, the only concern out of all this stuff is that he burns himself out, which we've seen before. And I'm hoping that because there are now more people committing to Fastlane than it was when it was just one guy, then, you know, that kind of... would, Or you would hope that kind of relieves some of the stress and pressure on... Felix to continue at the pace that he was when he was working on his own. And and I think at, at some point as well, some of this stuff will plateau because to make it any better, you would need to, because it all relies on Apple's web services, you would need new features and things to first come from Apple before they could be implemented in, in Fastlane. So obviously they can refine it. The Fastlane guys can constantly refine the tools I've got and add subtle new features that don't necessarily um, depend on the communication with Apple. But for any new big features, then it needs, you know, it would rely on something new coming from Apple first. So I'm hoping at some point, uh, just for everyone's sanity, that that this does plateau at some point and, and, you know, slow down a little bit. And then maybe we could think about updating the tutorial uh, (laughs) and, and, and getting it up to date. And maybe, Greg, we could even get you doing some videos on it because I think you'd have a lot of fun with this because uh, it is really good. It's so easy to set up. One thing that I've not mentioned that probably I should have done at the beginning is the way that you control all this is um, it's very similar to anybody that's used CocoaPods. When you initialize Fastlane for a project, it creates a fast file. And in that file, you just define your lanes, which is where like Fastlane comes from. And you can have like an ad hoc lane, a beta lane a distribution lane and then in those lane is where you define those separate actions and then when you run it it depending on which uh, arguments you pass to fast lane it will pick which lane and run all those necessary arguments a, a lane is just a script of a series of these tools like generate screenshots up, update provisioning sign whatever is yeah, that what yeah. a lane is pretty much yeah i mean it's it's almost identical in terms of the um the syntax to it a pod file, and I know you, you've used Cocoa Pods, so you'd, you'd fall right into this. It, it would seem like second nature the first time you do it. And and all this stuff is extensible as well, so there's even API within Fastlane itself to allow you to extend it. So if there isn't an action that you want, then you can just build it yourself and then feed that back, push that upstream to the guys, and obviously I would assume they would consider it and roll it into Fastlane itself. 
All right. I think, uh, Mick, it's time to wrap up. Your time is up. Do you, did you want to add anything else or do you think uh, we've covered it? The only one thing that I've got on my notes that I wanted to mention was, I know we've talked about Android on the podcast and we've now got the Android team uh, at raywendick.com as well. Uh, and the guys at Fastlane are working on adding Android support now uh, to Fastlane because obviously it's predominantly iOS. Uh, they may well it's exclusively iOS because they don't do any of the Mac stuff. But they have just... This week, in fact, released a new tool that is called Screen Grab, which is basically the equivalent of Snapshot for Android. So, you know, they're not even, you know, they're not leaving Android out or Android developers out. You know, they want to bring this same great aut- automation of these really frustrating and boring tasks to both platforms. Uh, so we're going to wrap up there. Thanks a lot, Greg, for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. I had a great time as always. Uh, As always, if you have any feedback or comments on the podcast, please feel free to reach out at podcast at raywenderlich.com. And don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. That helps us a ton. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the raywenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.